Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the Thinking Global podcast by eInternational Relations, the world's leading open access website for students and scholars of international relations. As ever, I'm going to be your host. My name is Kieran O'Meara, and today I am so lucky to be joined by my deputy podcast editor and this week's co-host, Edward Curry. Hi, Ed. Great to have you back with us. Hi, Kieran. Thanks for having me. As some of you may have noticed, there was no riddle at the top of this episode. That is because today we want to focus exclusively on the content of the interview that Ed and I participated in. This week, Edward and I interviewed Professor Dove Waxman on the unfolding situation in the Israeli-Hamas war. In case the situation has indeed changed, this recording took place on the 8th of October at 9pm London time. Professor Dove Waxman is the director of the University of California Los Angeles Y&S Nazarian Center for Israel Studies. He is a professor of political science and the Rosalind and Arthur Gilbert Foundation Chair of Israel Studies at UCLA. Professor Waxman's research focuses on the conflict over Israel-Palestine, Israeli politics and foreign policy, U.S.-Israel relations, American Jewry's relationship with Israel, Jewish politics and anti-Semitism. He is the author of dozens of scholarly articles and four books. These are The Pursuit of Peace and the Crisis of Israeli Identity, Israel's Palestinians, The Conflict Within, Trouble in the Tribe, the American-Jewish Conflict over Israel, and most recently, the Israeli-Palestinian Conflict, What Everyone Needs to Know. And there is a link to that last one in the description box to this episode. Before we begin, don't forget to click on that little like, share, subscribe, or follow button. That way you'll be able to get all the content that Thinking Global provides straight to your device the moment it's uploaded. Okay, let's dive in. Hi, Professor Waxman, thank you ever so much for joining us today at such short notice. Thank you for having me on the program. To begin, I'd like to ask for listeners who may not be aware, what has happened in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict over the course of the last 48 hours? Well, a lot has happened over the last 48 hours, uh, beginning really uh, in the early hours of um, Saturday, October 7th, uh, when um, hundreds, apparently hundreds of Hamas militants uh, crossed the uh, border with Israel from the Gaza Strip, uh, entered Israel by land, by sea and by air, um, and uh, took over uh, many uh, Israeli villages and um, entered uh, smaller uh, agricultural communities, as well as taking over some Israeli military bases where they proceeded to uh, kill many Israeli civilians um, and capture uh, many and abduct uh, quite a number of Israeli civilians, taking them back to the Gaza Strip as captives. Uh, And at the same time, Hamas launched uh, thousands of rockets uh, deep into Israel. so since that um, that attack took place, uh, Israel um, initially quite slowly, but now uh, increasingly rapidly has been mobilizing its army. Um, as the Israeli uh, casualties mounted, the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu uh, officially declared uh, war. Uh, that declaration has been uh, re- restated this morning, earlier today. Uh, 
by the Israeli cabinet. So now uh, Israel is officially at war with Hamas. And this is actually the first time that Israel has made an official declaration of war since the 1973 Arab-Israeli war. Uh, and it signals, I think, um, that uh, the fighting to come is going to be unlike anything we've seen. What is the likelihood that we are witnessing the start of a third intifada? I wouldn't describe this as a third intifada, um, certainly not in the way that I think uh, the term intifada is is generally understood, which is uh, a ter- in terms of a more popular uprising. The first intifada uh, that broke out uh, in late 1987 uh, was, for, was, was really a grassroots popular uprising that's, that occurred across uh, the occupied territories, and it was largely uh, an unarmed um, uprising, not always non-violent, but largely unarmed. The second intifada was quite different and was a much more militarized than the first, um, but it was also a, a broad uh, uprising uh, by Palestinians. What's taken place yesterday with Hamas's attack and uh, and the war that's now uh, taking place uh, between Israel and Hamas is really uh, a war between Hamas and, and uh, its uh, uh, partner Islamic Jihad against Israel. This is not uh, something that, as yet at least, has has brought in um, Palestinians who aren't members of those two uh, militant groups. So I think this is a war, and I think it's better to be understood as a war than as an intifada. Could Hamas's attack and Israel's reaction lead to a new generation of Palestinian refugees in the region? It's certainly possible. Um, I mean, depending on what Israel does in the coming hours and days, um, there could be a um, a flow of Palestinians trying to escape uh, the Gaza Strip um, into Egypt. I mean, that would be the only possible place that where they could go. But Egypt has uh, more or less kept its border with Gaza uh, closed. Uh, for much of the past number of years. Uh, so I don't think Egypt is likely to uh, accept a large number of Gazans were they to try to flee um, the Gaza Strip. It's possible, but I don't think um, there'd be refugees so much as internally displaced persons. In other words, uh, many, many uh, Gazans who are likely to lose their homes, um, and or have to flee from their homes inside the Gaza Strip and will be internally displaced rather than becoming external refugees. Okay, fascinating. To what extent has the judicial crisis and an increase in Israeli settlers in the West Bank, by over 180,000 to 700,000 since 2012, been causal factors to this situation? Um, well... I would say both of these things have contributed to this, uh, to causing this war. I mean, in different ways. Um, so, more uh, in the more short term, the uh, judicial, the crisis in Israel uh, over the Israeli government's attempt to uh, overhaul the Israeli judiciary and, and particularly to limit the power and independence of Israel's Supreme Court, uh, that has been um, very unpopular in Israel. That has provoked. Uh, many months now of mass uh, demonstrations against uh, this plan. Um, And it has really, um, you know, generated deep divisions 
uh, in Israeli society, in turmoil in Israel, including uh, you know, uh, many Israeli reservists, Israeli reserve soldiers, uh, in refusing to serve in protest over this uh, uh, judicial overhaul, which they see um, as a threat to Israeli democracy. Um, and I think uh, the protests in Israel, the refusal of Israeli reservists to serve, the appearance of, is of this uh, domestic turmoil in Israel um, has, I think, influenced the decision of Hamas to uh, attack. Uh, because there's a perception among by Hamas, uh, as well as uh, Israel's other adversaries like Hezbollah and, and Iran, that Israel at this moment in time is historically weak, that uh, Israeli society is deeply divided. And uh, this perception of weakness, I think, has encouraged uh, Hamas to, to attack now. Um, in terms of the, the role of the expansion of Israeli settlements, of course, uh, that has played an important part in uh, in the conflict between Israel and the Palestinians. Israeli settlements uh, have been expanding for decades, have been growing for decades, not just uh, uh, in the last few years. Um, and so certainly, you know, the continued growth of Israeli settlements and the increase in number of Israeli settlers living in the West Bank has um, fueled uh, Palestinian militancy, especially in the West Bank. It's in the West Bank particularly where Palestinians obvious, uh, suffer from the expansion of Israeli settlements, uh, because that's where these settlements are being expanded. Um, and it's um, often uh, where you'll see attacks against Israeli settlers taking place and, and, uh, um, and in part as a result of the very tense relationship uh, to put it mildly, that exists between uh, Israeli settlers and neighboring Palestinians. I don't, however, think that the expansion of Israeli settlements is what motivates Hamas or is the reason for why Hamas uh, is at war with Israel. Um, that's true among Palestinians maybe at large, but Hamas is um, a specific organization with its specific ideology, an ideology that doesn't recognize uh, Israel's right to exist in any part of what it considers to be historic Palestine. It's not Hamas isn't just fighting to uh, stop the expansion of Israeli settlements or for that matter to establish a Palestinian state in just the West Bank and Gaza Strip. Hamas ultimately wants to establish a Palestinian state uh, ruled by Sharia law in all of the territory of historic Palestine, which includes Israel, sovereign Israel, that is Israel within the so-called Green Line. So I, I think while the expansion of Israeli settlements may um, encourage some support for Hamas among Palestinians, I don't think it's what motivates Hamas's leaders. As we are currently at the intermission of the episode, I'd like to take some time to talk to you about two things. First of all, please, please send us your letters. We love reading all about the different articles, features, books, podcast episodes of ours that you've been enjoying at EIR. So if you want to send us a letter and so we can read out your letter for everybody to hear, we'd love to hear what you're writing about, what you're reading about, what you're publishing on, anything. Send us a letter at thinkingglobal.eir at gmail.com. Please, please send them in. We love hearing from you. Secondly, 
Don't forget to like, share, subscribe, and follow. Click on all of those buttons. <laughs> and that way, when you follow and or subscribe, you get all of the content that we have to offer directly to your device. So, ping, it comes up the moment that it is uploaded, that a new episode of Thinking Global is ready for you to listen to. So please, please follow and subscribe. Another issue is really, really important today. E-International Relations is owned by a UK-registered non-profit organisation and run by an all-volunteer editorial team. All of my co-hosts, me, all of the directors, everybody, we are all a volunteer editorial team. So if what you've listened to, you've enjoyed, if what you read at e-international relations be that articles features or the tons of free books we have at e-ir.info please think about making a donation all donations help us fund future open access projects and keep our website functional and free to view if you would like to make a donation there is in fact a link in the description box we accept donations of any amount via PayPal's secure donation system or on Patreon. And if you support us on Patreon, or if you support us in any way, thanks so much. Thank you, thank you. So my next question is one that you yourself posed earlier on on social media. How far will the IDF go? Will we see a large-scale occupation and offensive into Gaza? And what do you think Israel's strategy will be now? So it's, a fa- it's obviously a rapidly moving situation. Um, and as yet, the uh, IDF has not um, formally announced any kind of um, uh, objectives, any war aims, if you like, in this, in this conflict. So it's not quite clear yet how far the IDF will go uh, in its offensive. I think it's uh, very likely, though, that this that the IDF will launch a um, a ground offensive. That this is not going to be just an aerial war like uh, the uh, previous some of the previous rounds of fighting, where the IDF. Uh, limited itself to uh, aerial campaign to, in order to avoid uh, risks to Israeli soldiers. Um, I think it's likely this time that there will be uh, a ground incursion. Uh, how large that incursion is will be is difficult to say because uh, what makes it very complicated is the fact that there are dozens and maybe as many as 100 Israelis, including Israeli civilians, uh, held captive in the Gaza Strip. Uh, probably uh, being held in underground tunnels that Hamas has built. Um, And so it's going to be very difficult for the Israeli army and for Israeli ground troops who go into Gaza to uh, fight in areas where there might be uh, Israeli hostages. So that's going to complicate matters. The other other factor that the the Israelis have to consider as they uh, determine their their objectives and their their tactics in this conflict is to avoid... Uh, 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 escalating to avoid, uh, for example, Hezbollah becoming involved or um, an escalation of violence in the West Bank. And so uh, while I think it's um, certain that the Israelis want to hit Hamas very hard, if not to destroy Hamas, um, it's going to be a challenge for them to do that 
while it, while ensuring that Israeli hostages aren't killed and uh, that the situation doesn't, the violence doesn't lead to uh, trigger escalations elsewhere. Um, so I think it's likely that there will be some ground operation. The sc scale of it is not yet clear to me. Um, as for reoccupying Gaza, I certainly don't think that's what Israel would want to do. They've, they've really been very careful not to do that um, since Israel uh, unilaterally withdrew from the Gaza Strip in 2005. There's no desire for Israel to uh, rule over the Gaza Strip and to reoccupy it. But the problem, of course, for Israel is that if they do um, invade Gaza overland um, and end up toppling Hamas's government there, what then? What will happen the day after and, and who will be in charge? And so Israel, uh, there's a danger, a risk to Israel that it might end up uh, occupying it, even if it doesn't seek to do so, just because there won't be any authority in Gaza left standing to actually govern the territory. Many analysts have agreed that the recent attacks were a significant failure of Israeli intelligence. What are the particulars of this assessment? Yes, I think it's uh, undeniable that the uh, attack that took place um, uh, yesterday uh, uh, by Hamas was a, a catastrophic intelligence uh, failure uh, for Israel on a par with its intelligence failure when the 1973 Yom Kippur War uh, broke out. Um, the, the main element of this is simply that just as in 1973, uh, when Israel believed that, it, that its neighbors wouldn't attack Israel because they'd been so uh, thoroughly defeated uh, just a few years earlier in the 1967 war, uh, so too this time around, uh, Israel, the intelligence community, the intelligence establishment, believed that, is, that Hamas would not risk uh, going to war with Israel uh, because that would likely provoke uh, disproportionate massive Israeli retaliation which would um, wreck uh, destruction on the Gaza Strip and the intelligence uh, assessment was that Hamas was more interested in governing the Gaza Strip uh, than going to war with Israel and it did not want to provoke uh, an Israeli attack and so that assessment that Hamas would be deterred from attacking Israel, that Hamas was deterred, um, turned out to be uh, wrong. The other uh, element that I think uh, has been uh, of this intelligence failure is the, is the failure to detect Hamas's preparations for war. Um, the scale and sophistication of Hamas's invasion yesterday, and it was something that would not, that would have required months of careful planning and preparation to have the rockets in place, to have the commando units trained, to have uh, everything ready to launch the surprise attack that Hamas did yesterday. And the fact that Hamas was able to do this uh, basically under the noses of Israel, since Israel has uh, massive intelligence gathering capabilities in the Gaza Strip, both uh, uh, signals intelligence, uh, high tech, as well as human intelligence, is really staggering uh, that there was no advance warning given uh, to Israel by the intelligence agencies. They were completely taken by surprise. And that, I think, represents really a stunning uh, intelligence failure. What do you expect the international reaction to Israeli policy will be, especially given that Saudi and Israeli relations have been recently normalized to some degree? Um, well, I, first of all, I, I, Saudi uh, Israel relations haven't normalized. I mean, they've had a, 
uh, and Loki uh, kind of behind the scenes relationship, a, a covert relationship for many years. But formally speaking, there's no diplomatic relationship between Israel and Saudi Arabia, although that is something that the uh, Biden administration had hoped to achieve uh, in the in the next few months. And I think that effort by the Biden administration to broker a normalization agreement between Israel and Saudi Arabia is going to be uh, maybe one casualty of, of this war. It's going to be much harder for that to happen now. Um, but um, going back to the question of the international reaction, um, you know, it really depends, of course, what countries we're talking about. Um, there are some countries, uh, particularly in the Muslim world, who are strongly supporters of the Palestinians and will um, um, surely express their solidarity with the Palestinians and their condemnation of the actions of the Israeli military. Um, and then there are countries that are more sympathetic to Israel, uh, primarily uh, countries in the West, in both Europe and in Europe, Canada, the United States, for example. And in those countries, uh, we've already seen uh, many Western governments express uh, sympathy and solidarity and support for Israel. Um, so I think the international reaction is likely uh, to go along those lines of being quite divided. There's clearly uh, a lot of outrage uh, across the international community by the brutality of Hamas's attacks uh, yesterday. I mean, uh, the, the things that, that uh, some of the Hamas militants did is really, um, you know, beyond, beyond belief. Um, and so I think there's going to be outrage at that. But at the same time, as this war develops, and particularly as Palestinian casualties mount, I think uh, you'll see much more divided reactions with some uh, countries condemning Israel and others continuing to stand by Israel. So our final question for you is sort of the big question, which is, as it stands, what do you think the likely outcome of this conflict will be? Well, I think, um, you know, the the short term outcome is certainly going to be a military victory, so to speak, for Israel. There's no question that the Israeli uh, army is going to deliver a very harsh uh, blow against Hamas. Uh, but uh, whatever Israel and whatever kind of punishment uh, the IDF inflicts upon Hamas in the in the days and weeks to come, um, I think in some sense will be less significant than the victory that Hamas has already achieved uh, by its uh, surprise attack yesterday. Um, so, you know, from Hamas's point of view, the fact that it was able to carry out such a large scale attack, uh, killing so many Israelis, currently more than uh, 600 Israelis uh, are believed to have been killed and, and many, many more wounded. Uh, that is already a huge success for Hamas. Um, and um, so whatever Israel is able to do over the next few weeks to the organization and its leaders, I think will really uh, not matter a great deal in, uh, compared to the success that Hamas has already achieved. But I think the question will be whether um, in the in these in the in this war whether Hamas government in Gaza will be toppled whether the Israelis will decide that actually uh, allowing Hamas to maintain a government in the Gaza Strip which Israel has done for um, uh, for the for well over a decade now that that it, that decision that's no longer possible and that they will try to remove Hamas from power in the Gaza Strip 
If that happens, then, you know, one possibility uh, would be that Israel will end up uh, uh, at least briefly uh, reoccupying and taking over the Gaza Strip, running it directly, or perhaps that uh, the international community will try to find some way to restore Palestinian authority control over the Gaza Strip. So there's a lot of uncertainties, I think, at this point in terms of what will be the future of the Gaza Strip and the Hamas's uh, government there. Um, but I think it's clear that uh, whatever ultimately happens, um, you know, what is is sure is that there will be many, many more casualties on both sides um, in, in the days to come. Hmm, hmm. Well, Professor Waxman, I'm afraid that's all we have time for. Professor, thank you ever so much for coming on the podcast. It's been great to have you with us. Thank you so much again. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Wow, that was just so interesting. We were so lucky to have Professor Waxman agree to come on and talk to us as the situation is unfolding. Also, don't forget that a link to Professor Waxman's book, The Israeli-Palestinian Conflict, What Everyone Needs to Know, is in the description box attached to this episode. I have to say, it is a fantastic book if you want to understand the current conflict between Israel and Palestine. Fantastic book. Now, before I leave you, there's a couple of things I need to say. Don't forget to click on that little like, share, subscribe, or follow button. If you haven't been over to E-International Relations, the world's leading open access website for students and scholars of international relations, go check it out. There, there is just loads of daily uploaded articles, academic articles, concerning all things international relations, interviews, features, and loads of free books. Go check them out at e-ir.info. If you like the content of e-international relations, also don't forget you can donate at the link below. As I say, all of our content is produced by voluntary editorial staff. I'd also like to send a massive shout out thanks to the e-international relations podcast team. That's Ismail Aden, Eddie Cohen, Catherine Damron, Tushara Kadeka, Abigail Glynn, Nigel Huckle, Daniel McDade, Eduardo Pieroni, and Romanus Orpheus Tophis. Thank you ever so much, guys. This podcast would not be possible without you. You absolutely rock. Music by Material Music also. So I guess there's nothing left to say apart from I've been Kieran O'Meara. I'm Edward Curry. And together we've been Thinking Global. Global. Thanks, guys. <laughs>